shifting relations between the world's biggest powers, Washington now courting India. But what makes the country so critical for the U.S.? And what sectors will feel the impacts? We break down the latest in today's episode. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Are we seeing a potential shift in relations between the world's biggest powers? Washington doubling down on securing India to counter China. But India is not an easy one to win over. We look at what big ticket deals Washington is signing off on. Here are the details. A turning point in U.S.-India relations. Washington is shoring up India's power by signing massive deals from defense to critical technology. Toast to our partnership, to our people, to the possibilities that lie ahead, to two great friends, two great nations, and two great powers. Cheers. The White House announced the deals on Thursday, during India's prime minister's state visit to Washington. That's after rolling out the red carpet, a speech to Congress. We are home to all faiths in the world. And a state dinner. Diplomatic treatments usually only reserved for treaty allies. As a nuclear power sitting on a critical location, India is key to Washington's efforts to counter China. The U.S. is also trying to woo India away from Russia, its top military gear supplier. To take their relations to the next level, Washington is sharing some of its highly sensitive technology, such as jet engines. The two countries would co-produce General Electric's F-414 engines for India's fighter jets. The New Deal is being seen as a sign of trust. The U.S. has been reluctant to share such sensitive technology with India, partly because the country buys weapons from Russia. Both countries are also talking about more intelligence sharing between their militaries. U.S. ships might be able to call more often at Indian ports. And India would allow the American Navy to maintain and repair its ships there. India sits on a critical location. It's right next to China. On its west is the Strait of Hormuz. On its east lies the Strait of Malacca. Both are critical pathways for transporting energy. On top of defense, Washington is also helping India with its semiconductor technology. U.S. memory chip giant Micron plans to pour over 800 million to build a facility in India. U.S. semiconductor firms are also set to train over 60,000 Indian engineers and invest $400 million to set up an engineering center there. In space, India would join NASA's project to send astronauts back to the moon by 2025. The nation would also conduct a joint mission to the International Space Station in 2024. Beyond those projects, both countries would also deepen cooperation in fields like critical minerals, quantum computing and artificial intelligence. And it's not just politics. President Biden, joined by India's prime minister, met with big tech CEOs on Friday. That's as leaders look to increase cooperation on artificial intelligence, semiconductor production and space. Executives from Apple, Google and Microsoft attended. Outside the White House, big businesses are already eyeing India as a potential alternative to China. Tesla and Twitter CEO Elon Musk met with India's prime minister Narendra Modi on Tuesday. Following the meeting, Musk said he's confident that Tesla will establish itself in India and will do so as soon as possible.
Last month, Amazon's cloud unit said it would pump over $12 billion into building data centers in India by 2030. As for Apple, it opened its first store in India in April. The tech giant also opened three more production sites in India last year. The country is becoming increasingly important for American businesses. Last year, over 20% of India's foreign direct investment came from America. And the U.S. stood as India's second largest investor as of 2022, just after Singapore. President Biden reiterating his stance on the recent diplomatic storm. After calling Chinese leader Xi Jinping a dictator, he says he doesn't think it would undermine the progress Washington has made in its relations with China. We let the, uh, uh, the idea of my choosing and avoiding saying what I think is the facts with regard to the relationship with India, with uh, China, is, uh, is just not uh, something I'm going to uh, change very much. Secretary Blinken had a great trip to China. I expect to be meeting with President Xi sometime in the future, in the near term, and uh, I don't think it's had any real consequence. Biden made the original comment at a political fundraiser, describing Xi as a dictator and saying the leader was unaware of the Chinese spy balloon flying over the U.S. in February. Just hours after Biden made the comments, Beijing reportedly launched an official complaint with the U.S. ambassador to China. China's newly installed ambassador to the U.S. also made strong protests at the White House on Wednesday, calling Biden's remark a, quote, smear of China's top leader. Chinese authorities haven't published either of the statements on official websites. China state-run media also ignored the matter, seemingly to avoid drawing attention to Biden's labeling of Xi as a dictator. How intertwined are the U.S. and Chinese economies? One of America's largest defense companies, Raytheon, saying it's impossible to completely decouple from China. We look into how deep the company's ties to the country really reach. Here's more. Speaking to Financial Times, Raytheon's CEO noted the company has several thousand suppliers in China, noting it can de-risk but not decouple. He added he thinks that's the case for everybody. Besides its business in China, Raytheon is a heavyweight in the U.S. defense industry. It's a big military contractor, and over half of its revenue comes from U.S. government sales. Raytheon is also co-developing the next generation of hypersonic missiles for the Pentagon and supplies weapons to Taiwan. Beijing slapped sanctions on Raytheon after the Pentagon shot down the alleged Chinese spy balloon that flew over the U.S. in February. Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes said if it had to pull out of China, it would take the company many years to reestablish that manufacturing capability in the U.S. or other friendly countries. How big is Raytheon's business in China? The company itself is not allowed to sell weapons to China, but it has two subsidiaries there, Pratt & Whitney and Collins Aerospace. Both companies have about 2,000 staff members in China. The two subsidiaries are also suppliers to China's first homegrown jet, the C919. The jet was designed to compete with rivals like Boeing and Airbus. Raytheon is finding other sources for some of its components, though. But Hayes added, the company is not in a position to pull out of China the way it did with Russia. 
a warning for thrifty shoppers straight from the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. A Thursday report is expanding on forced labor accusations. The latest concern, Chinese e-retailer Timu alongside Chinese fast fashion retailer Xi'an. In the report, lawmakers stated that American consumers should know that there is an extremely high risk that Timu's supply chains are contaminated with forced labor. The report accuses Timu of failing to maintain even the facade of a system to keep products made with forced labor off its marketplace and is likely shipping them out to customers on a, quote, regular basis. U.S. law is designed to block business from importing goods from China's Xinjiang region unless they can prove the products aren't tied to forced labor. But the report explains both Timu and Xi'an use business models that take advantage of the de minimis rule. According to the IRS, the rule considers the value and frequency of how goods are provided, and if they're deemed small enough, accounting for them becomes impractical. Together, Timu and Xi'an ship nearly 600,000 individual packages to the U.S. a day, rather than sending goods in bulk. The method makes them exempt from duties, taxes or government fees, so they can sell to customers at rock-bottom prices. Timu is owned by Chinese e-commerce site Pinduoduo. It's most known for offering cheap home goods and clothing from China. It launched in the U.S. last year and is now the second most downloaded app in the Apple Store. Xi'an has previously denied that its goods linked to the Xinjiang region. Timu had not responded to the report as of airtime. A social media platform embroiled in controversy responding to a rising concern whether TikTok has ever stored data on its U.S. users inside China. That answer now appears to be yes. Three months ago, TikTok CEO testified in the House vowing that the American data has always been stored in Virginia and Singapore in the past. Weeks later, a Forbes investigation reported that TikTok has been storing U.S. user data on Chinese soil, including critical details like social security numbers and tax ID. U.S. Senators Richard Blumenthal and Marsha Blackburn demanded that the company respond. Under that pressure, TikTok admitted American data has been handled differently. The wit argued that its CEO testified about user data collected as users experience the app, not the financial details it keeps on its content creators. Instead, creators' data is treated as an exception, referring to those who make money from the app and have signed contracts with the company. Now, lawmakers say it's crystal clear that Americans' data is still at high risk, especially in light of Beijing's espionage efforts toward the U.S. And I think we need to put all of our options on the table as to how we deal with TikTok, not just because they are collecting and storing surveilled information, but they are failing to tell the truth to America. If Congress confirms that TikTok CEO committed perjury in his testimony on U.S. user data, the company's future may hang in the balance. Senator Marco Rubio has requested the DOJ investigate the matter, and 13 other congressional leaders have followed suit. California's fentanyl-related deaths are becoming more widespread. Beyond San Francisco, 60 miles south in the county of Santa Clara, officials announced that deaths from the drug had more than doubled by the end of May. The majority of fentanyl trafficked into the U.S. is mass-produced in Mexico using chemicals from China. NTD's David Lamb has the details. 
Here in Santa Clara County, which is the sixth most populous county in California, officials recently announced a spike in fentanyl drug-related deaths, which went from 17 to 41 in the month of May. The county coroner and chief medical examiner said most fentanyl drug deaths in the county involve fentanyl combined with other drugs, including methamphetamine. Officials continue to warn of fentanyl-laced pills circulating in the community as a portion of victims have unknowingly ingested the drug, thinking they're taking something else. The county has launched campaigns to educate the public on fentanyl and the risks of experimental drug use, with the latest campaign aimed at 14 to 29-year-olds. According to the county's website, fentfacts.org, fentanyl is involved in four out of five Gen Z drug deaths nationwide. This is different than drug deaths that we've seen in years past. My daughter, nor the children of the other parents up here, they didn't die of an overdose. Family members of those that died from fentanyl poisoning have demanded statewide action from elected officials. They were poisoned. In my daughter's case, she was seeking Percocet. She received a counterfeit pill made to mimic an oxycodone pill, of which she took half before going to bed two days before Christmas in 2019. The opioid is used to treat severe pain, but it's 50 times stronger than heroin, and a small dosage can be fatal. California lawmakers have been divided on how to decrease drug deaths, such as whether to focus on increasing punishment for drug dealers or put efforts into prevention services. From the Foreign Relations Committee on June 20th, U.S. Democratic Senator Bob Menendez introduced the Strengthening Fentanyl Sanctions Act. It would target Chinese PRC pharmaceutical companies, Mexican drug cartels, as well as foreign individuals involved in global drug trade. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. A crime against humanity now in the crosshairs of new action from Taiwanese lawmakers. On Wednesday, the island's capital city signed a new resolution into law, aiming to push back on the practice of forced organ harvesting in China. Here's the latest. The bill was first passed in Taiwan's Taoyuan City earlier this month. Now it has support from Taipei, backed by 28 lawmakers from both sides of the aisle. No organ transplantation should be done without consent, let alone be commercialized. So I think that's why a humanitarian bill such as this can receive bipartisan support in this legislature. The resolution seeks to bring criminal charges to those involved in forced organ harvesting. Lawmakers also point out another aspect. We should let our fellow Chinese people know that this forced organ harvesting atrocity is happening under the rule of an authoritarian regime. Aside from Taiwan, forced organ harvesting in China has caught the attentions of nations across the globe. Just this weekend, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed the first anti-forced organ harvesting law in the U.S., aiming to stifle transplants in China by cutting off money supply from health insurance companies. The U.K. is also taking action. British lawmakers are pushing for tighter rules to ensure taxpayer money isn't going to sponsor the atrocity. In 2019, an international tribunal in London concluded that prisoners of conscience are being killed en masse in China for their organs, and that the scale of such practices are highly significant, enough to supply a transplant market that brings about $1 billion worth of profits annually. Reports suggest that victims are being murdered on demand, given the unusually short wait time for organ matching. 
Many on the receiving end are Falun Gong practitioners, a spiritual group facing decades-long persecution for its widespread popularity. Sam Wang, NTD News. Coming up, a momentous visit marked by red carpets and yellow yoga mats. Indian Prime Minister Modi's state visit has big implications for U.S.-India relations. With the world's largest population, fifth biggest economy and major influence in American business, India appears to be the next critical player in geopolitics. How does that play into Modi's visit and the political tensions between Washington and Beijing? We hear from Alexander Gray, Senior Fellow in National Security Affairs, for details. They have come to understand in a way that few countries have the clear and present danger posed by the Chinese Communist Party. They, they have the possibility of being the pivot point. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Washington has been seeking to forge an alliance against China's influence. But can India help? The nation is historically close to Moscow and has a long conflict-ridden history with China, complete with holding a strategically important location in the U.S.-China rivalry. Will the U.S.-India alliance bring big changes to the world order? We hear from Alexander Gray, Senior Fellow in National Security Affairs, for details. Alex Gray, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Tiffany. So, Alex, India isn't a U.S. ally, but it's being treated like an ally. There's a state dinner for Prime Minister Narendra Modi. What is so special about India to get this type of treatment? Well, India really has the possibility of being the deciding U.S. partner in the Indo-Pacific. They just overtook China and the size of their population. Uh, obviously, the world's largest democracy. Uh, their their economy is is growing rapidly, and their military capabilities are are expanding at a at a pretty fast clip. Um, and they, under Prime Minister Modi's leadership, they have come to understand in a way that few countries have the clear and present danger posed by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, you take all that and you put it together, and they really can, they, they have the possibility of being the pivot point uh, in turning the Indo-Pacific in a direction much more uh, amenable to, to U.S. interests in a free and open region. And it seems in terms of the economy and manufacturing, Elon Musk actually just met with Modi yesterday. He was also recently in China. How do you see the U.S. and India working together, either in terms of manufacturing or supply chains, moving that away from China? India is a tremendous opportunity for U.S. companies and and European companies as well uh, to be the alternative to China. Um, Chinese manufacturing, Chinese supply chains, as we've seen, are a huge vulnerability for the West. And India, with its uh, young population, with its energetic population, um, with its its growing uh, middle class, really can be a place, not just as an export market, but potentially as a place for a manufacturing hub and a, a, lo- a location where our supply chains can reset 
uh, as we we in the West collectively have learned uh, since COVID-19, just how vulnerable we are to the CCP's depredations. Uh, so I think it's incumbent on the US and on Europe to find ways uh, to work with Prime Minister Modi to build up that Indian capacity to be a manufacturing alternative to China uh, for all of our interests. And Alex, in terms of geopolitics, India is a member of the Quad Alliance, but it's also quite close with Russia, kind of relying on Russia for weapons in terms of China. And it's been criticized by the West because India hasn't criticized Russia in terms of the Ukraine war. So given all these different factors, how should the U.S. approach foreign policy with India? Well, we need to understand India's historic position uh, and its historic strategic position India was a leader of the non-aligned movement during the Cold War. India comes uh, to the U.S. Uh, allied bloc, to our Quad Alliance, um, from a very unique perspective. And we, I think, uh, strategically, we need to be very patient with India as they attempt to, to become more comfortable working closely with the United States and with Australia, Japan, and uh, our other partners. I mean, Tiffany, we have to remember India has only in the last several years realized at the highest levels and in a really visceral sense uh, just what a threat the CCP poses to India. And this, as you know, this was really highlighted by the horrible attack on the border uh, in 2020 when 20 Indian soldiers were, were brutally murdered by the Chinese. Um, and, and this has really started a strategic revolution in Delhi. Uh, and, and look, it's not going to happen overnight. We're not going to change 70 years of Indian strategic policy uh, in a couple of years. It's going to take persistence and patient statecraft. And I hope sincerely that we don't, um, in our exuberance to get India closer to the United States, we don't uh, do and say things that are counterproductive, um, whether it's about Russia, whether it's about some of the traditional reliance that India has had on Russia for its arms and for its military equipment. I think we need to take the position that this is a long-term strategic realignment, and we need to be focused and we need to be patient as India adapts to its new circumstances. Alex Gray, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Tiffany. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus@ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you soon.